Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Um, so it, the series has been running since the late 90s. It's, it's every third Wednesday of the month. There's never a cover charge. All we, all we ask is that you buy a drink, hard or soft, to tip your bartenders to support the bar. You support the bar, you support the series, you keep the series going. So please, if you can, uh, buy a drink. Um, all right. Uh, Dan and Sagey are working very hard to keep you hydrated, so please, please tip your bartenders as well. Um, I'm very excited about our readers tonight. Uh, our, our readers tonight will be Tim Pratt and Lawrence M. Schoen. Now... Both authors, so we're, we're, we're in between booksellers, as they say, but both authors do have books for sale. So can we just show everyone what you have? So uh, what we'll do is um, Tim's going to read first, and after Tim reads, uh, you can come up and uh, buy a book and get it signed. So let me just show, uh, hold on one sec. Can you see that? So Tim's book, The Dreaming Stars, which he has here, and paperback, and The Wrong Stars as well. And Lawrence has the Barsk series. So we have Barsk, The Elephant's Graveyard, and The Moons of Barsk in hardcover. So we hope you will come up and get copies of these uh, and get them signed by the authors. Before Tim reads, just a quick announcement. Uh, next month, November 21st, please come in. If you want to come in, you're welcome. You're welcome to join us, have a drink, hang out, listen to some, some good fiction. Next month, November 21st, we have Liana Renee Heber and Kat Rambo. So I hope you'll join us for that. You can applause or clap if you want. <laughs> December 19th, Nicole Corner Stace and Maria Devana Headley. <laughs> January 16th, Victor Laval and Julie C. Day. February 20th, F. Brett Cox. Oh, and I have someone else that wants to read in February that I think you will like, but I can't announce because I haven't confirmed. <laughs> Charlie Jane Anders, what? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't, I have to confirm that. Uh, March 20th, Molly Tanzer, Carrie Laven. April 17th, Nathan Ballingrud and Arcady Martin. And definitely a lot more uh, awesome readers coming up in 2019. Who do we have lined up for May? I don't have Simon it. Simon Strances and Kaya Shanti Wilson. Yes, so there you go. So I hope you'll join us for that. Um, so yeah, so uh, on to our first reader, Tim Pratt. Tim Pratt has won a Hugo Award for short fiction and was a finalist for the Nebula World Fantasy and Philip K. Dick Awards, among others. He's the author of 25 novels and four story collections and works as a senior editor at Locus Magazine. His, his latest project is the Axiom Space Opera series, begun with The Wrong Stars in 2017, 
and continuing this year with the Dreaming Stars. Here is Tim Pratt. Hello, can everyone hear me? Should I be louder? I can yell. I'm Tim Pratt. Um, since this is book two of a space opera series, I'm gonna give you a little bit of a TLDR. So 600 years in the future, humanity is spread throughout the galaxy with the help of a species of friendly but pathologically dishonest little squid-like aliens that we call liars, because we don't know what they're really called because they lie when you ask them. In the first book, The Wrong Stars, my uh, ragtag spaceship full of post-human weirdos and unfrozen cryogenic time refugees, they discover that there's another alien race, heretofore unknown, ancient and malevolent, known as the Axiom. The Axiom's dormant, they're hibernating, while these very long-term, universe-altering technological projects that they have going are coming to fruition. But their various technological nightmares are still floating around in space. Their space stations, their weird weapons caches, their bases, and their projects are things that are altering the fundamental nature of space-time, which is probably not good for people who live in space-time, like humans. Uh, the big fear is that the Axiom might notice humanity sort of buzzing around and making colony worlds, and in that case, they'll roll over in their sleep long enough to exterminate us, which is something they have a history of doing to sentient, sapient races. So my heroes in the series are trying to exterminate them first. So that's kind of the backstory. And the scene I'm going to read is about a character named Sebastian. And in the first book, he's infected by this malfunctioning Axiom mind control technology. Turns him into a psychopathic megalomaniac who tries to conquer the universe. Before that, he was really just kind of conceited. He wasn't as bad. So his friends have tried to repair his brain. They've tried to get all the sort of probes and nanotech out of his brain and you know, do stem cell therapies to regrow some of the damaged tissue you know, in areas involving empathy and conscience and stuff like that. So they're trying, they're gonna wake him up, two of his friends, Elena and Ashok in this scene, are trying to wake him up from a medically induced coma to see if he's less murdery. So they tried to wake him up one time before in the book and he tried to kill everybody. So this time they're waking him up in uh, virtual reality, right? So they're putting him in sort of an air gap system. They're just gonna test him. But he doesn't know he's in virtual reality. He thinks it's real. So here we go. It'll open any time now. <sighs> this was much faster when I practiced it, I promise. Okay. Mm. It's wonderful, the books are from Angry Robot. Wonderful UK publisher, okay. All set, Ashok said. Elena nodded. Because your heartbeat is very thumpy and your pupils are doing some stuff, pupils do, and the people those pupils are attached to get nervous, and also you're sweaty, Ashok said. Simulated sweaty, but your avatar is mimicking real physiological responses, so... She sighed. Of course I'm nervous, but that doesn't mean I'm not ready. Uh, the doctor said I shouldn't get my hopes up, that the drug therapies are still in progress, but we may be too busy to run these tests once we reach the planet. I'd like to see if there's any improvement. I can't help but be worried and hopeful all at once. Gotcha, Ash. Gotcha. Ashok looked around. Being in this homemade Glaucodus simulator is weird. Glaucodus is the space station they're living on. Usually when I plug into the Hypnos, I'm in a giant mech suit punching planet-eating space leviathans. Just be yourself, Elena said. Every minute of every day, Ashok said cheerfully. Okay, I'm waking Sebastian up. Ashok drew his fingertip across the surface of a handheld terminal, easing back on the levels of sedation that kept Sebastian in his induced coma. 
A moment later, his eyes fluttered, and Sebastian turned his head toward Elena. She braced herself for an attack. Instead, a lazy smile bloomed on his face. Elena? Her heart eased in her chest like a fist unclenching. I'm here, Sebastian. Are, are we there? Did we arrive at the colony world? Elena glanced at Ashok. He shrugged. The doctor said there might be some memory loss. His brain's been through a lot. Sebastian started to sit up, then groaned, touching his temple. Was I injured? What happened? We were awakened from cryosleep early, Sebastian. Elena took his hand. Do you remember we encountered an alien space station? It seized our ship, pulled us aboard? He frowned. I remember waking up, maybe. Arguing with Robin and Hans and Ibn, seeing something on the view screen, something big, all strange angles. That's right, the station captured us and started to cut open our ship. There were machines, security devices, and the crew, we were scattered for a while. He grimaced, I don't remember that at all. My last clear memories are launch day, Hans shouting nighty-night and Ibn muttering something about in this sleep what dreams may come. Then I got into the cryosleep pod and I might have dreamed. Or were those flashes of the station, the metal spiders? Those can't be real. They were real. They were alien. He shook his head. Aliens? There are aliens? Are they friendly? Elena almost smiled. I wouldn't say friendly, but the aliens weren't at home. The station was abandoned. The automated systems were still active, though. The, the station thought our ship was broken and in need of repair. It, it thought we were broken and in need of repair. You... She tried to think of how to explain it. For accuracy, she should say something like, you were attacked by a robot spider that stuck electrodes and injected nanotechnology into your gray matter and tried to transform you into a compliant slave, but because the technology was made to mind control a different species of aliens that we call liars, it didn't work properly on your human physiology, so instead of making you into a servant, the implants made you into a psychopath, and then you tried to hijack the station's offensive capabilities to build and launch a fleet of automated warships that would enable you to take over the galaxy. Oh, and also you kidnapped me because despite having your brain scrambled, you decided you were in love with me, and you might have succeeded in your plan of conquest if I hadn't taken advantage of your attempt to kiss me by punching you in the head while wearing basically a set of electrified brass knuckles. You got a head injury, Ashok said. <laughs> Elena nodded. Yes, that's exactly right. Sebastian's gaze slowly tracked over to Ashok and his eyes widened. You must have been hurt terribly. Was it aliens? Ashok shook his armored head, then thumped some of the metal on his skull with the manipulator cluster at the end of his prosthetic arm. Oh, you mean the metal plates and the augmented limbs and all that? Nah, these upgrades were collected painstakingly and with great care over time. Only a few of them were due to grievous, catastrophic injury. Most of them I just have because they're more useful than whatever I was born with. I'm Ashok, by the way, part of the crew that rescued you guys off that alien space station. While you were snoozing in cryosleep for all those centuries, humanity was keeping busy. We've upgraded and expanded and spread through 30 colony systems in the galaxy. The future is a wonderful place. You're going to love it, he grinned. But our mission, Sebastian said, everything we trained for... Elena squeezed his hand. She sympathized. It was a lot to take in. Their mission had been launched in the 22nd century as a desperate bid for survival by a species on the brink of extinction, and then Sebastian had slept through the galactic renaissance. It's good humanity didn't go extinct, at least, he said. However, they may have changed. Ashok is not entirely typical, Elena said. I'm an early adopter, Ashok said, majorly into radical self-improvement. Most people are too timid to really seize all the technological advances the modern world has to offer. Not everyone sticks a computer directly into their face, he means, Elena said. Modern world, Sebastian said. How long were we frozen? About 500 years, Elena said. Welcome to the 27th century. 
Sebastian sat up more successfully this time, the straps around his legs holding him to the table so he wouldn't float away. Where are we now? Is this a ship? An asteroid, Ashak said. Big one, a real lumpy space potato. Started out as a mining operation, then they smoothed the tunnels down, cleaned it up, turned it into a habitat. It's called Glaucatus. Sebastian looked at Elena. Does everyone live on asteroids? Are we the only ones here? People live all sorts of places. Right now, the only people living here are you and me and Robin, Ibn, and the crew of the ship that saved us, Callie and Steven. What about Hans? Elena shook her head. He didn't make it off the alien station. It was a very dangerous place. Sebastian winced. Hans, I can't believe it. I always thought he was too mean to die. So we're on an asteroid, but where? Did we make it to the colony system? The distant star that had been their original destination amusingly did have a colony world there now. It was one of the 29 systems accessible by Wormhole Bridge. If their Goldilocks ship, the Anjou, had arrived as planned, they would have been thawed out and told they were a few centuries too late to be the first humans there. No, we're back in Earth's solar system, way out near the orbit of Neptune. How did we get... No, never mind. I won't ask you to catch me up on several centuries of old news. I will ask if I can have some water, though. Ashok said, sure thing. Are you my attending physician, Ashok? Nah, I mostly fix broken machines, not people. Stephen Barros is the station's doctor, but I'm helping him out. Ashok didn't mention that Stephen had declined to take part in this test after Sebastian tried to murder him in the last one. He passed Sebastian a bulb of water. He sucked it down greedily, then plucked at the straps, holding him down. Can I walk? Or not walk, but float around? He waved his arms vaguely. You can try. Elena and Ashok loosened the straps around Sebastian's legs, and he turned gently on the bed, stretching out his limbs, pointing his toes. He was entirely unselfconscious about wearing only a small pair of undershorts, a quality Elena remembered from training with him for their voyage. He would always wander out of the shower smiling and completely oblivious to the fact that no one else strolled around naked until Hans barked at him to cover up this wasn't a damn naturist colony. Sebastian had murmured something about cultural differences and mostly remembered to wear a robe after that, though it wasn't always fastened very tightly. Elena tried not to let her eyes linger on the planes of his body. The emotional parts of her infatuation with him had been completely burned out by his homicidal behavior on the Axiom Station, but apparently her lust remained. Oh well. Her girlfriend Callie probably wouldn't fault her for looking, though she might question her taste. Give me the grand tour, Sebastian said, and took her hand. As soon as you put some clothes on, she said, taking her hand back. They floated through the corridors of Glaucatus Station, perfectly replicated in the simulation. The passages were old mining tunnels, reinforced with metal in some places, still exposed bare rock in others, tall and wide enough to accommodate elephant-sized mining drones. Well, there was an elephant. Sorry. <laughs> the pirates who'd lived here had carved, cut, and blasted living quarters, storage areas, and recreation, and other facilities as needed. The new inhabitants were still inventorying the mishmash of equipment left behind by first miners and later pirates. Elena had pointed out some of the highlights as they floated. The gym with low-gravity resistance equipment, cargo bays full of as-yet-unsorted pillage the pirates had acquired, the machine shop, which Ashok had made his own, with every wall covered in magnetic clamps and cargo netting to keep his tools in place, the room full of strap-covered chairs and hypnos diadems, which she vaguely described as entertainment centers, that's the VR that he's in, and the galley. She started daydreaming about which room Sebastian could stay in if he was really better now, as he seemed. She drifted into the gleaming stainless steel and tile space and did a little spin gesturing all around. The galley, which I say should be called a kitchen because this isn't a ship, but tell that to a bunch of people who spend all their time on space boats, is amazingly well kitted out. It's mostly food warmers and microwaves like you'd expect, but there are weird pressure cookers and things too. Apparently a good chef can reproduce just about any dish you could get someplace with gravity and open flames. You're a pretty good cook, right? I remember you talking about it during training. I dabble, he said. 
in the way that means my skills are exceptional, but I am modest and also sexy. <laughs> the coffee's good, too. The pirates hit some kind of gourmet food ship and got heaps of beans. Ah, oh, coffee, I didn't even, didn't even dare to dream. Elena took the hint and filled a couple of bulbs from the dispenser, flicking one to spin toward him. He deftly caught the bulb, gave it a suck, and widened his eyes. This is the best coffee I've ever had. I'm not just saying that because I haven't had any at all in 500 years. Elena sipped hers and nodded. It had hints of chocolate and cherries. It really is. Simulated food was always the best. This really used to be a pirate base? Elena nodded. We repurposed it. They'd actually won it by right of conquest, but that was a long story. Read book one for the long story. Huh, actual space pirates. Yeah, we're in a sort of lawless region here, beyond the jurisdictional reach of the Jovian Imperative. That's the major polity in the area, but close enough to zip out and hit shipping lanes. He shook his head. Pirates? I bet they left a lot of weapons lying around, huh? Was his tone nonchalant or just faux nonchalant? What, like cutlasses and cannons? Grape shot? Or the higher tech equivalent, I guess. She sipped her coffee before answering. Sebastian had a curious mind, that was all. Sure, they left a few things behind. There's an armory, but the weapons weren't well-maintained. Most of it's junk. The pirates had all their best weapons on their ships, and Callie destroyed those. Ah, the famous Captain Callie. Is she ferocious? He mimed, clawing and growling like a tiger or a house cat. Elena wanted to kick him in the shin, but that would send them both spinning away in the null gravity. She settled for a shrug. I guess she can be if you're on the wrong side of her, but she's the reason I'm alive and you're alive, and Ibn and Robin too. We'd all be dead if she hadn't rescued us. Shame she couldn't save Hans, but nobody's perfect. He sipped meditatively. I suppose I'm in this Callie's death then. I should thank her. Where is she and everyone else for that matter? They went on a supply run. There's no one on the base but me and Ashak right now. Really? Seems like a lot of people to go fetch groceries. Elena snorted. We've been cooped up here for months, going off station is a treat people line up for, even if it is just to run errands. His eyes widened in alarm, or a good facsimile. Are we stranded here then? What if we suffer some disastrous failure of infrastructure? I can't imagine pirates are scrupulous about doing safety checks. Are there escape pods or anything? This is a natural and reasonable thing to worry about, she told herself. Oh no, we've got two ships. They took the Golden Spider. We still have the White Raven in case of emergency. Hmm. Sebastian spun the empty bulb in the air before him and watched it twirl. Where are the bathrooms? I gather I've been peeing into a tube for some months, and I look forward to reasserting my agency in eliminative matters. I'll show you. They floated out into the corridor. There's a whole locker room, basically showers, toilets, even a sauna. She led him through a hatch and pointed, stalls over there. The toilets are basically the same as the zero-gravity ones we trained on. I'd sort of hoped five centuries of technological development would make them more elegant, but no. Straps and vacuums, charming. That's the word for it. There are lockers over there, towels in this dispenser here. The showers are nice. She pointed to a row of gleaming silver cylinders standing upright on the other side of the room. You get in, slide the door shut, water and optional soap sprays at you from various adjustable directions. Then the water gets slurped out by fans at the top and bottom and there's forced air drying. It's really quite refreshing, you should try one. Sebastian looked over the showers. Hmm, they look big enough for two. Elena's face warmed up and she shrugged. If he could fake nonchalant, so could she. They're nice. The pirates weren't very good housekeepers, but they stole quality fixtures. If you'll excuse me. He drifted off to one of the toilet stalls and swung the door shut behind him. Elena floated over to look at the showers. Big enough for two. Maybe she'd mention that to Callie. Ashok murmured in her earpiece, how goes the tour? Fine so far. No warning signs? No red flags yet. She thought about his questions regarding weapons and escape pods. Curiosity or pointed curiosity? Maybe a couple of pink ones. Things are going a lot better than they did last time, though. There's not blood everywhere, it's true. Ashok signed off. 
Sebastian emerged from the stall, shaking his head. That process will never feel natural. It would be nice to live somewhere with gravity again. He floated to the towel dispenser and pulled out a strip of cloth, then drifted toward her. He cocked his head. I haven't had a shower in 500 years. I think I'd like one. Care to join me? He began to slide down the zipper of his jumpsuit. She put her hand on his chest, just below the unzipped portion, and lightly pushed him away, sending him drifting backwards. Sebastian, I, I'm flattered, but I'm with Callie now. He regarded her for a moment, his expression blank and unreadable, then smiled widely. But that's wonderful to find love across the centuries. How marvelous. Is it love? Elena nodded. As far as I can tell, you're not upset? Upset? No, no. She's the daring space captain who saved your life. It's only natural for you to show your, for you to show your appreciation. Rank has its privileges and all that. She frowned, but before she could formulate a response, he went on, I'm disappointed, of course. I always thought once we reached our destination, set about the great work that you and, my, you and I might explore our relationship further. But hopes are not the same as expectations. Neither of those is the same as a requirement. I would still like a shower, though, even a lonesome one. Show me how it works. Elena decided to let his shitty comment roll off unremarked upon. He'd been through a lot, after all. Of course. She slid open the nearest cylinder. There's a button here. Sebastian shoved her in the sh into the shower, and she yelped as she crashed against the interior wall. She spun herself around in the small space, but he was already sliding the doors closed. She hit the release button, and the doors tried to slide open, but something had them jammed. He'd tied the towel around the handles, trapping her. He looked at her through the crack in the door. His expression was utterly blank. What are you doing, she said. Pursuing my destiny, Elena. She darted forward, slipping her hand through the crack to try to jab him in the eyes, but he pulled back and vanished from sight. Elena sighed. Ashok? Yes? Sebastian just locked me in a shower pod. I see. Where's he going? He's coming toward the medical bay. I could tase him or something, but I guess we're supposed to see how this plays out? That's the idea. Standing by, then. Elena listened to the low hiss of the open channel for a long moment, tense, waiting for sounds of violence. Finally, Ashok said... He didn't come in. He switched on the infirmary's quarantine mode and sealed me inside. We knew those Axiom implants gave him great computer skills, and I guess his brain remembers them. I've still got him on the monitors, though. Now he's systematically checking all the parts of the station you didn't show him on the tour. He's looking for the armory, Elena said. I assume. Oop! There we go. He found the guns. Huh. So do we call this a failure? I can punch us out of the simulation. Give it a minute. Obviously it's not a success, but... Let's see what he does. Maybe we've made some progress. For a while there, he really seemed like his old self. He hasn't murdered anyone yet. <laughs> Being less homicidal, that's a big step, right? I feel like you're setting a pretty low bar there, Elena, but uh, <laughs> sure, let's see where he goes from here. Pause. He's at a terminal consulting the station map. Now he's pulling up the technical schematics for Glockidus, but I can't tell what he's looking for. Now he's heading for the airlock where the White Raven is docked. You think he's gonna take off? We could yell at him over the public address system if you want. I don't know what we'd say. Helena rested her forehead against the smooth, cool wall of the shower pod. He's boarded the White Raven. Now he's powering up the engines. Well, at least he went non-lethal this time, Elena said. He just locked us up. Maybe his conscience is starting to grow back. He's firing on the station now. <laughs> A distant thud made the room vibrate. He, yep, he's definitely targeting our life support systems. Guess that's what he was looking at the schematics for. All right, fine, Elena sighed. It's a failure. So is that in the newest book, or that's the newest and book. you had that for the sale? Is that 
for sale. Yeah, I got some. Okay, come and buy some books and have them sign them and have a drink, and we'll be back in about 10 minutes or 15. 15 and 10, 10 or 15. Welcome back to the second half of Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Thank you. I'm Ellen Datlow. Um, if you want to get on our mailing list, you can just go to um, the Fantastic Fiction at KGB website and sign up. We do not spam you. We send one or two me emails a month just telling you about this show. All right? And by the way, there's always a, it's a pod it's podcast, and you can um, it'll be on our website event very soon within a week within a week. within a week it's usually up there so you can if you know for um you can listen to it again and then anyone who's not here can listen to it so anyway our second reader i'm happy to present lawrence m Schoen, who's been a finalist for the john w campbell award <laughs> more more the hugo award and the nebula award a variety of small presses have published a series of humorous short stories, novellas, and novels about his protagonist, the amazing Conroy, a stage hypnotist turned CEO who travels the galaxy with Reggie, his alien companion animal, that eats anything and farts oxygen. <laughs> On a somewhat higher level, Lawrence's book, Barsk, The Elephant's Graveyard, won the Coyote Award for Woo! Best Novel. Its sequel, The Moons of Barsk, was published by Tor Books this past August, and I believe he is reading from one of those books, probably the second. So please welcome Lawrence. Good evening, and now we get to see if, in fact, the phone has charged at all. <laughs> Whoo! Up 2%. So that should be sufficient. Uh, <laughs> I like that, very good um, I need to tell you a few things because I am reading from a sequel and I will be when my eyesight comes back um, so much much like um, Tim. Tim Tim, thank you it, yeah, yeah this is going to be good much like Tim's uh, uh, universe um, we're set in the far future, uh, in this case about 80,000 years from, eh, more or less now, when you're playing with 80,000 years, what's, what's a century or two? Um, and humanity's gone. And in its place are many, many different, what we might call uplifted races, uplifted animal species. They don't know they're uplifted, they just think they are. And they have no knowledge of human history. And they're spread out across 100,000 worlds. It's a big galaxy. We got, you know, anthropomorphic cats and dogs and yaks. Got to have yaks. And um, many, many other kinds. I believe 87 different races or species, depending on how you want to parse that. And, about, and among them are two different, the two different species of uplifted elephants. Um, and about 800 years before the beginning of the first book... All the other races decided, you know, we don't like those elephants. They look funny. And they don't have fur. And they got those stupid noses and those big ears. And they took them from all the other planets throughout the galaxy that they were cohabitating on. And they put them on a world nobody wanted, the planet Barsk. And that's why they're there. Um, the first book is Barsk the Elephant's Graveyard. And a major theme involving it is that... Um, 
at some point in a in in one of these or as I call them font in a font's life late in their life they wake up one morning and realize hey I'm dying soon and they have knowledge of a location to go to um there is no no continents on bars two different archipelagos when you get this this message in your head you set sail for this non-existent island doesn't exist not on any map and you go to meet your dad um and the only people who know where the island is are the people who've gotten the call to go there. Hence the elephant's graveyard. Uh, I really enjoyed writing the first book, and, and there was a prophecy early on in the book. And the protagonist keeps thinking he's figured out what the prophecy is, and then he's wrong. And then he says, okay, no, no, I was wrong, but now I really know. And then he's wrong. And I did this about five times, uh, mostly just to see how much Marco would let me get away with. Um, and, and I really liked doing that. That was fun. So when I sat down to write the second book, I decided that um, everything you learned in the first book had to be wrong. And, and, that, became, and, I'm, and that, that became a theme. And so I'm going to read you the opening chapter, which, is entitled, which makes this very clear at the outset. It's entitled, Nothing But Lies. And let's see if I need to remind, if I've hit all the points I need to tell you about. Well, if not, we'll figure it out as we go. Are we good? Yeah. Okay. So, nothing but lies. From Barsk, or the moons of Barsk. I don't want to call it that. That's blame Marco. <laughs> Marco will tell you I wanted to call it Ulmaj. Yeah. Good call. All right, so, nothing but lies. Amidst torrents of rain and blasts of lightning, Ryan stepped from his boat onto the shore of the last island, the place where his life ended. The mental beacon that had guided him across the open water faded away. Clarity replaced certainty, composed of equal parts confusion and anger. Flapping his ears against the downpour, he muttered a phrase heard by his students at least once a ten day for the past six decades. The math is all wrong. He stumbled into the surf, limbs weary after too many days spent bailing just to keep afloat. His left hand grasped wildly before finding the gunwale, and he went down on one knee, half submerged in water. I'm sorry, submerged in water halfway up that thigh. How did I miss it? How does everyone miss it? Despite his aches and fatigue, he heaved himself forward, leaving the water and struggling up onto the sand. His head turned left and right, taking in what he could see of the beach through the curtain of rain. Behind him, a shaft of lightning struck his boat and set it aflame despite the rain. Ryan sniffed at the scent of ozone, acknowledged the sizzle of burning wood, then ignored both as he focused on the math once more. His muttering continued. Five and a half million font on Barsk. Birth rate of half a percent. Mortality rate not significantly more is to matter. At least three quarters, conservatively, of whom sail away when they sense their life's ending. That's more than 2,000 people showing up year after year for centuries. But that wasn't math. That was just arithmetic. Still, it provided a starting point. The bulk of the actual math he shaped into the questions that had assailed his mind once his need to be here had been slaked by completing the journey and arriving at this destination. Why had he never examined that need? Or its sudden onset? Or how it was simply accepted as part of the natural order of things by everyone on the planet. Or that no font on any world in the galaxy prior to the Alliance shoving them all on Barsk, not a single one of them, 
had ever woken up one morning with a certain knowledge of their coming death and the compulsion to travel to meet it. The slowest of first-year students should have been able to see the incongruities present, and yet, no font did. No font had, at least not prior to saving away. How many million dying font had walked this same stretch of sand, dazed and bewildered as he was now, expecting something? Something other than just another expanse of shoreline? He strode further up the beach until the edge of the island's forest became visible through the rain. Turning slowly, he took in everything that the storm allowed. For a moment, it was as if the years fell away, and he stood at the height of his professorial power, poised once more behind a lectern at the front of a classroom. Beating his trunk against one outstretched hand for emphasis, he asked his questions, genuinely wanting answers, but knowing in, the, in his heart that they were rhetorical. Where are all the boats? The fragments of so many journeys. Where are the bones of all the people? He bellowed into the wind and rain with the last strength remaining to him. The weather offered no reply. The beach remained merely a beach. Ryan's trunk dropped, drooped lax upon his chest. His upraised arm fell to his side. The years weighed heavily upon him again. It was over. He'd arrived at the last island, done with living. And then a voice spoke from behind him. Really, Ryan, you might ask the same question of any other island. Or do the people of Taylor leave their possessions strewn upon their beaches? Do they eschew the proper rights and fail to bury such citizens as pass before their time? Surely you don't find debris when you travel the points of either archipelago. He spun, swiftly, nearly falling, but with a skip kept his feet. There at the forest's edge, like an actor stepping onto a stage, a figure emerged from shadow and approached through the rain. It resolved into a person. A woman. An old woman. An elf. Here on this island that existed on no map, that only the dying could find, that made no sense when you thought about it, and which no one ever thought about, here was someone walking toward him as nonchalantly as an aunt at a family gathering, and she'd called him by name. Ryan of Taylor, she said, her voice hoarse with years, but musical all the same. I bid you welcome. I am Bernath. My mother's name was Lane. His ears drooped at the wonder of it, questions of math falling away for the moment. She wore a simple dress of pale brown with a slightly darker vest over it. Both clung to her body as the rain soaked them. As she drew closer, he caught a faint floral scent, a perfume that had been popular decades ago. Her eyes locked on his face, her arms opened wide in greeting. The simple familiarity of the ritual provided a touchstone, and he, he shook off his confusion, stammering the traditional reply as he had at other introductions thousands of times over too many decades. Perhaps our mothers knew one another. The absurdity of his words hit him. Knew one another. It would require a speaker, assuming one could be found who was old enough to have known either an elf named Lane or his own mother before they'd sailed away and arrived here themselves. The framing of that puzzle brought the impossibility of the math back to his mind, now compounded. This was the final island. No one lived here. Each font sought it some few days after awakening to the knowledge of their death lay at hand, and then strove to arrive on its shores. Nothing of the living world belonged here. Least of all a hostess. Ryan sucked air hard as his mind raced with probability functions. Assuming the island's perimeter 
contain an average span of usable beaches for bringing a boat to shore, arriving on the same day as another dying font, had better odds than the annual archipelago lottery. But this Bernath, she had called him by name, spoken of his home, and, then unli and that unlikelihood exceeded all the stars beyond the clouded sky. He gawked at her as the words fell from his mouth. You, you know me? Oh, I feel as though I do. Though I know we've never actually met. But in time, you and I will come to know one another far better. In time, I hope you will entertain some questions I have. Questions about magnetic optics and the dynamics of charged particles and electromagnetic fields. His ears flapped back and down as he lowered the odds of his initial estimate. Taking into account the thousands of students he'd had over a lifetime spent in academia, the many papers he'd presented and published. Even so, the math was still impossible. Cut the nearly infinite in half and one still had half an infinity. And yet the Ellis woman's questions reflected some of his most recent work and unpublished theories, research that had never been part of his classroom, calling into doubt his calculations once more. You know my work? She closed the distance between them and without inquiry or invitation slipped her arm around his. Oh, indeed, yes. It has occupied much of my time in the last few years. You were so close to a breakthrough before you left, weren't you? She began leading him back toward the forest from, from which she'd come. I, I think I was. One can never be certain, of course. The simulations were quite promising, but I needed funding to take, them things, take things to the next level, and... She patted his hand. Funding won't be a problem for you any longer. I promise. He snorted, a piercing trumpet of disbelief. <laughs> no matter how small the budget item and the needs of my work were anything but small. In all my years at the University of Lorca, funding research, physics research has always been a problem. Look around, Ryan, revered scholar. Do you have any doubt that this island is not Zlorka? The limitations you endured at the university will not hamper you here. You mean I, I, I can continue my work? But I've, I thought I'd left that all behind with my life. I'm dead now, aren't I? Isn't that why I'm here? That life is dead, yes. Everything involving the people you knew, the bonds you forged with friends and colleagues, all the relationships you built, the vast family you have known, all that is gone. But I think you have a few years left to you. Don't you agree? And wouldn't you like to finish what you started? Surely you have some suspicion where it all leads. Now that life, now that life is behind you, what else is left but to follow the ideas of your mind's creation down avenues no other being has ever conceived? Of course, but... She guided him deeper into the trees, moving slowly in acknowledgement of his still-labored breathing, but without drawing attention to it. I imagined as such. One does not settle for only a glimpse of how the universe works, not when there's the chance to see so much more. By the way, I have to tell you, I had to argue with a number of the others to be the one to greet and welcome you. Others? Ryan paused, and Bernath patiently stopped as well. His gaze lifted as if he could see through the dense forest up ever higher, perhaps all the way to the canopy. You've an entire populated, civilized wood here? She laughed, a strange sound in his ears after days of deluge and constant bailing. Well, of course. Wouldn't be much of a city if we didn't. But hush, Ryan. All these questions are natural enough, and you're not the first to arrive here and ask them. 
I promise you there's a full and informative briefing in your near future, and you'll find the answers perfectly satisfying. Now come, let's get you settled. No doubt you can use a hot meal, and a roof over your head, and an opportunity to put on some dry clothes. Well, that all sounds quite wonderful, he admitted, though never expect to experience any of that again. If, if you think there's time. There's plenty of time now that you're here. A couple nights of solid sleep and a comfortable bed will have you good as new. When you're ready, and not before, there are more than a few people eager to meet you. Students of a caliber you've never experienced, all waiting to discuss your work. He nodded long as in a dream, a part of him already crafting the next stages of his research, spinning off from the last notes he'd scrawled and left behind for his most promising students. After only a few steps deeper into the shadow dwell of this, the final island as he'd, as he'd always understood it to be, he caught Bernat's eye and asked, So, is everyone wrong then? This isn't where we come to die? Technically, I suppose it is, she said as they left the last shore farther behind. Death comes for us all, eventually. No one's discovered any way to avoid that. But just because you've arrived here doesn't mean you need to be in any rush to expire. But then, if it's not the end of the final voyage, as we've all been taught, what is this place? Bernat laughed again, and Ryan realized he could get used to the sound of such delight. She patted his arm as she replied, I like to think of it as the best-kept secret on all of Barsk. I should say, if, if you didn't like how I read that, um, J.G. Hertzler, who some of you as Martok from Deep Space Nine, uh, did the audiobook, and that first chapter is available. It's uh, the pinned tweet on my Twitter account, which is Klingon guy. So you can hear, and he, he's, I mean, he's, he's got the voice. He's Martok, you know. Thank you very much. So both those two books are here for sale, and Lawrence will sign them for you. And is there a third one coming? I'm sorry, I missed that. Um, if you don't want to think there's a third book, do not read the last sentence in book two. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there might be a third book. There, I intend to write a third book. Whether I find a publisher for the third book is <laughs> currently up in the air. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Hang out. You don't have to rush home or out, and we'll see you next month. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.